I wanted to uh, thank Dr. Kelly for that introduction and for uh, his uh, accepting my um, giving this lecture. And um, okay, yeah. okay, thought I heard somebody say something. Um, I wanted to also uh, say that I'm going to dedicate this lecture to uh, Dr. MacArthur. Uh, Dr. MacArthur is the founding president of the college, as you know. I was lucky enough to have him for three uh, separate tutorials for sophomore um, theology, junior philosophy, and even a senior seminar. Um, that was uh, quite an experience. He's a great, was a great, very great teacher, and uh, we owe him a real great debt of gratitude. So I'd like to dedicate this to his memory and ask you to pray for him. Um, the reason I decided to write on the topic I'm going to talk about tonight uh, charity and divinization is it's something that's always puzzled me how we can say that uh, a person can be a human person I mean can be divinized um, it seems like a contradiction to say that that you can become God it smacks of it might seem to smack of a kind of Buddhism or something like that it's kind of view where you become actually um, you, you lose your own ego and you become instead God um, as I understand it that's the uh, Buddhist notion of Nirvana um, so it's been a, a question in my mind how you can do that, and so I thought I would look at some parts of the Summa and other writings of St. Thomas that I'm not as familiar with, and uh, thought that would be a good thing to do for my own sake, for my own spiritual life, and uh, also uh, just uh, hopefully you'll learn something from it and uh, find it edifying. So <clears throat> to start, St. Thomas defines charity in the Summa and in the disputed question on charity as friend, the friendship of man for God. In this lecture, I'd like to do three things. First, I'll try to explain why St. Thomas defines charity in this way. Secondly, I'll argue that this definition of charity demands that man be not only saved and freed from sin, but also be divinized. So that's going to be demanded by the definition of charity. Finally, I will try to fill out a little bit what it means to be divinized. So each of those topics is, I think, as far as I can tell, pretty vast, and as I read through the material that St. Thomas put, put out on it, I find that um, there are many, many roads you can go, many different interpretations, not interpretations, but different um, uh, thoughts you can follow up and try to think through, and uh, it's, it's very complex, um, but it's wonderful stuff, um, and I encourage you to read the, uh, the original. When St. Thomas addresses the question of charity in the Summa, uh, and elsewhere. He finds evidence in scripture to define charity as friendship. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his Lord is doing. But you I have called friends, because all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's uh, our Lord speaking in uh, John, the Gospel of John 15, 15. This claim seems odd, especially to one who's read Aristotle's discussion of friendship. He says, when one party is removed to a great distance as God is, the possibility of friendship ceases. And I think in the Magna Moralia, he says it's ridiculous to think you could become friends with God. To become a friend of God is, uh, seems impossible since friendship implies mutual love and more particularly a shared life. Nevertheless, the effects of charity would seem to point us in the direction of friendship since they do so nearly mirror them. Conversing, I'm going to give you now a list of, of texts of scripture and, um, and uh, characteristics of friendship and try to show that charity matches these things. So conversing together is a sign of friendship, but St. Paul says, our conversation is in heaven. 
Friends delight in their friends, but through the Holy Spirit we rejoice in God. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends consent to each other's will, but the Holy Spirit moves us to obey the commands of God. Uh, in John again, if you love me, keep my commandments. Um, one basis of friendship is family relations. Whoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. Those who are of the family are free men. You have not received the spirit of bondage again in fear, but the spirit of adoption as sons. That's from Romans. Friends live together. And from Corinthians, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? By friendship, and, uh, by friendship we love those loved by our friends. We are told to love our enemies, and we know that God loves all men. So why do you love your enemy? Because... You love God, who loves your enemy. So there is some reason on the surface of things to say that by grace we're made friends of God. Uh, St. Thomas tackles this issue a little more formally in the Summa. He explains that not every love has a character of friendship, but only that love which he calls benevolence or goodwill. We have such a love for someone when we wish the good for him. If, on the other hand, we wish the good for the thing we love, but for our sakes, as we want wine or a horse to be good, for our sakes, and not for the sake of the wine or the horse. Uh, we do not have friendship with the thing loved, but, as he says, a certain concupiscence. Even benevolence or goodwill is not sufficient for friendship. Rather, we must be loved in return by what we love. Such a mutual goodwill, he says, is founded upon some communicatio, some shared good or life. We might, for example, be friends with another because we both love horseback riding or philosophy or virtuous action. We may be brought together by blood or citizenship. There's always some good which friends both love and upon which their friendship is founded. Since therefore, St. Thomas goes on, there is some communication of God with man according as he communicates his blessedness to us. Upon this communication, some friendship must be founded. The way he puts this is telling. Upon this, some friendship must be founded. Why must there be a friendship here? He seems to be saying that the definition of friendship could not but be satisfied in the case of the communication of the good in question. It is clear enough that the two of the, that two of the three criteria for friendship are met in the case before us. God himself could not communicate any good at all to us without wishing for our good, for he is utterly transcendent and can in no way benefit from his creature. So he can't be giving us good because he needs something from us. Um, so the love by which he shares any good at all with us, let alone his own blessedness, must be a benevolent love. Secondly, he does communicate a good to us. In fact, every good we have is given to us by him. But not every good can be found a friendship. Every good we have, whether naturally or supernaturally, is given from above, but we are not called friends of God because of any such gift, but because of the communication of God's blessedness and charity. So one thing I noticed in reading St. Thomas is that he almost always will refer to uh, the object of charity as the blessedness of God, not just God, not, not any arbitrary thing, but blessedness. The third point, though, the third criterion, is a little harder to see, namely that we cannot but love God in return and with a benevolent love if that particular good, his own blessedness, is shared with us. Why could we not have a concupiscent love for God? That is, a desire to have him for ourselves, and a satisfaction with the fact that God wants us, want, excuse me, wants to give us a share in himself. Such a love would not be a friendship, because love which is not mutual and love in which we do not wish for the beloved 
what we wish for ourselves is not a friendship. If I desire the good only for myself and I'm merely using you to get it, even if what is sought by is by its nature a common good, as a student might use a teacher to get some knowledge, I would not be desiring that good as common, but appropriating it to myself, treating it as a mere private good. We would not be friends, but employer and employee, or master and slave, or something like that. Friendship then demands a common good, and that it be desired as common. If a good which is by nature common is shared, and shared just as common, then there's necessarily a friendship based upon this communication, provided the other two criteria of friendship are met, namely mutual and benevolent love. In fact, if people love a good as common, they by definition have for the others who share in that good mutual and benevolent love. It is possible, however, to love God not as a common good, but merely as a source of one's own blessedness. As St. Thomas says, and this is a quotation from the disputed question on charity. To love the good of some city happens in two ways. One way that it be possessed, another way that it be conserved. However, to love the good of some city that it might be had and possessed does not produce the political good because thus even some tyrant loves the good of some city that he might dominate it, which is to love himself more than the city. For he desires this good for himself, not for the city. But to love the city truly is to love the good of the city that it might be conserved and defended which produces the political good. Therefore, to love the good which is shared in by the blessed, that it might be had and possessed, does not make a man well disposed to blessedness, because even evil men, evil men desire that good. But to love the good according to itself, that it might endure and be spread, and that nothing be done against that good, this makes a man well disposed to the fellowship of the blessed. And this is charity, which loves God for himself and neighbors who are able to have blessedness just as themselves. That's the end of the quotation. So he's distinguishing between two kinds of love, right? A man can love the city because he wants to own it, right? He wants it for himself. He wants it as an instrument for his own good. Or he could love the city as a common good. That's the way you must love it if you're willing to die for it, right? If you're willing to give up your, your private good for the sake of the city, for the sake of your country, then you're loving it, it seems, as a, as a common good. I suppose there might be other reasons too, but... That would be the good reason. Okay. Just as a man might love to rule a city as a tyrant, we might love to possess God simply for the sake of our own private happiness. And just as one should love God, excuse me, should love a city for itself as a good to be preserved and even defended with our lives and private goods, so we should love God for himself and be willing to sacrifice our private goods for him. We should so love him that we desire that he be loved by all and we rejoice in his blessedness. This latter love, the love of God as a common good, is fundamental for charity. The good which is communicated can then be desired with a mere concupiscence, a love which is not charity. It can even be desired as a common good without charity, however. There's another quotation, this one is from the Summa. To love God above all things is something connatural to man and even to every creature, and not only the rational ones, but even to the irrational and the inanimate according to that mode of love which is able to belong to each creature. The reason for which is that it is natural to each thing that it desire and love something according as it is naturally apt to be. For thus does each thing act as it is naturally apt to act, as is said in the physics. It is manifest, however, that the good of the part is for the sake of the good of the whole. Whence, 
even by natural appetite or love, each particular thing loves its own proper good for the sake of the common good of the universe, which is God. So he's saying there that without grace, you can love um, God as a, as a uh, common good. Right. But you can't have charity without grace. So how do we put that together? Every natural part, so this is just to kind of make clear what was said in that text, every natural part is naturally ordered to the whole of which it is a part, as the hand is ordered to the body. And so there is in such parts a natural desire for the whole and for what rules the whole. It is natural for us to block with our hands something thrown at our heads. We do this without thinking and naturally, because the hand is a part which serves the whole body and its ruler, which is the head. So we can by nature love God more than ourselves because we are by nature a part of the universe ordered to and under God. But if an unfallen man were to love God in this way, he still would not love him from charity or the love of friendship. I mean, an unfallen man who doesn't have the grace of charity, obviously. Right? I mean, so, so a man who has uh, an integral nature, a nature that's not uh, defective due to the fall, if Adam, let's say, before the fall, if he weren't given any grace, he wouldn't be able to have charity, even though he would love God more than himself and uh, love him as a common good in some, some way. Why is this? Well, he would only love God as a principle and end of all things. So there's another quotation uh, from the Summa, I think. To the first, it must be said that charity loves God above all things more eminently than nature, for nature loves God above all things as he is the principle and end of natural good. But charity loves God above all things according as he is the object of blessedness and according as man has a certain spiritual fellowship with God. So it's again, he's going back to that notion of blessedness. If I rejoice in your happiness, your blessedness, I must love you for yourself and not for what I can get from you. To love God's blessedness and to share it is not simply to love him as the beginning and end of all things. It is to love him with a love that adheres to him and his blessedness, blessedness as to one's own blessedness, as to the delight of one's soul to love him as the good that quells our every desire. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, says the canticle, and so expresses the longing of the soul for union with God. What is this blessedness which God shares with us in charity? In general, we only speak of blessedness in the case of rational beings. We do not call cats or dogs blessed, because even when they're full, in full possession of their proper good, they're not very much aware of the fact. Nor do we speak of a rational being as blessed unless it has and firmly holds its own proper good. Thus, blessedness is the perfect possession of its pro proper good by an intellectual nature. That's the definition St. Thomas gives. But God's proper good is himself, and his is an intellectual nature, perfectly united to himself. God is then perfectly blessed because he is perfectly good, is in union with that goodness, and he's aware of the fact. And this blessedness is shared with us in charity so that we too have that good, God himself, as he, as he has himself. That is, we are united to that same perfect good as the object of our own blessedness, and we are aware of it. Not only that, but if we actually share in the blessedness of God and we re rejoice in his blessedness, we must share that blessedness in common with him, for it is him. And therefore, we must share in it as a common good, at least as common with him, Loving his happiness, we love it for him, and so as a common good. And loving his happiness, we love whatever he deems good to love. As it were, we love what pleases him and makes him happy. Ultimately, then, we love ourselves and our neighbors and even our enemies in that love. We love him as a common good and beyond all else. But further, we love him as our own blessedness. 
Consequently, by charity we enter, enter into friendship with God because we partake of the good which is his happiness, and that happiness is his in the most fundamental way, because it is him. Moreover, in loving him as he is in himself as a common good, we want for him the good appropriate to him, that he might, as, going back to the text from the De Caritate, uh, that he might endure and be spread and that nothing be, should be done against that good. He said that's the way we should love the city, and he's saying, no, this is the way, I'm saying, suggesting that's the way we should love God. Such a love, then, is a mutual benevolent love based upon a common good and is therefore a friendship. Such love is surely beyond nature. One last note here. Blessedness can be understood from the point of view of the good had or from the point of view of the one who has it. When we share God's goodness, we possess by grace what he possesses by nature. The thing possessed, God, is the same, but the one possessing it remains the ones possessing it remain distinct. In this sense, we form a community in grace and glory, the heavenly Jerusalem. Charity, then, is a friendship based on shared love of the blessedness of God himself. Through it, we love God with the love wherewith he loves himself. And the God, good he shares with us is himself as blessed, as enjoying his own goodness. Not only charity, but faith and hope, too, have God as their object in a way natural, no natural virtue does. In distinguishing the moral and the intellectual virtues from the theological, uh, St. Thomas writes, and this is a text uh, from the uh, Summa. Man is perfected through virtue for the acts by which he is ordered to beatitude. The blessedness or happiness of man, however, is twofold. One happiness is indeed proportioned to human nature, which man is able to arrive at through the principles of his nature. The other happiness is a blessedness exceeding the nature of man, which man is able to attain only by divine power according to a certain participation of divinity, according to what is said in 2 Peter 1.4, that through Christ we are made sharers in the divine nature. And because, of this, and because this sort of blessedness exceeds the proportions of human nature, from which nature he proceeds to acting well, man proceeds to acting well, according to his proportion, they do not suffice for ordering man to the aforesaid blessedness. Whence it is necessary that there be divinely superadded to man some principles, through which he be so ordered to supernatural blessedness, just as he is ordered to the connatural end through natural principles, though not without divine help. And such principles are called theological virtues, both because they have God for an object, insofar as through them we are ordered unto God, and because they are poured into us by God, and because such virtues are taught to us only by divine revelation of sacred scripture. So here's what I'm taking that to say. Nature provides us with principles by which we are ordered to our natural sort of happiness. For example, we have natural inclinations to society, to truth, and to food, other things as well, which inclinations are perfected and rectified by moral and intellectual virtues. The inclination to society is rectified by the virtue of justice, to truth by, let's say, science, and to food by temperance. But we have no such natural principles by which we are ordered to participating in the divine nature, to be ordered to a divine participation, then, we need virtues which not only perfect already existent inclinations, but which add to our natures in ordering to an infinitely higher nature, that of God. We need to have added to us not virtues which would rectify our appetite or intellect vis-a-vis -vis the natural object, but which will provide the very object itself. This is clearer two articles later, and here's another quotation 
The theological virtues order man to supernatural blessedness, just as man is ordered through natural inclination to his connatural end. But this happens according to two things. First, according to reason or intellect. Second, through the rectitude of the will naturally tending into the good of reason. But these two fall away from the order of supernatural blessedness. According to 1 Corinthians, quote, eye has not seen and ear has not heard and it has not entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. So that's St. Thomas quoting St. Paul. So St. Thomas goes on. Once it was necessary that with regard to both, something be supernaturally added to man so as to order him to the supernatural end. And first, indeed, with regard to the intellect, certain supernatural principles, which are grasped by the divine light, are added to man, and these are things to be believed, about which there is faith. Second, the will is ordered to the end both, one, with regard to the motion of intention tending into it, the end, as into something which it is possible to attain that belongs to hope. And two, with regard to a certain spiritual union through which in some way it, the will, is transformed into that end, which happens through charity. For the appetite of each thing is naturally moved and tends to the end connatural to itself. And the motion, this motion, comes forth from a certain conformity of the thing to its end. So here's what I'm taking that to mean. Whereas the natural virtues rectify our inclination stands given by nature, the theological virtues give us inclinations to an end not had by nature. The intellectual and moral virtues, which I'm calling natural virtues, only rectify our appetites and reason with regard to naturally given ends. Mathematics, for example, is an intellectual virtue which rectifies our intellects with regard to the knowledge of quantity. And temperance is a moral virtue which rectifies our appetite with regard to the pleasures of touch. But the pleasures of touch and the truths of mathematics are goods to which we are naturally ordered. Faith, by contrast, gives us an inclination to truths which transcend our nature and are proper to the knowledge of God alone, while hope inclines our will to God as to the one whom we trust to secure for us a share in his own blessedness, and charity inclines our will to God himself as, to our, as our blessedness. There is a, in us no natural inclination, no purely natural inclination to God, as he is, is in himself, but only at most to God as the source and end of all things. Philosophical wisdom, the natural knowledge of the highest causes, seeks God, but only as an explanation of the things around us, and our natural love follows suit. Okay. If to desire and to possess God in the way which blessedness demands and which is offered to us by Christ, that is, if to desire friendship with God is something to which our nature is not ordered, we must wonder how we can be given it or even hope to be given such a desire or ordering by the theological virtues or by anything else. The short answer, which I've already stated, is grace. I turn now to the second part of the paper, grace and divinization. Most of you are familiar with the text of St. Athanasius in which he says, God became man that man might become God. The thought has a long pedigree. It's not original with Athanasius, but in fact it's in scriptures. The Gospel of John says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, later, refer later again referring to birth, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit 
his spirit. These references to birth and to being sons of God imply the taking on of a new nature, the nature of one who begets. Being born of God or born of the spirit means we have the nature of God or the spirit. That's what happens when you're born. You get a nature. You get the nature of a parent. Um, the second letter of Peter is often cited in this text, this context. I've already cited it once. I'll cite it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. So that's the key is the last text there, partakers of the divine nature. St. Thomas cites this text in his commentary on the Ephesians, a letter to the Ephesians. For the human mind and will could never imagine, understand, or ask that God become man, and that man become God and a sharer in the divine nature. But he has done this in us by his power, and it was accomplished in the incarnation of his Son, quote, that you may become partakers in the divine nature. Grace, then, is not a mere covering of sin or a medicine which restores our native health, but it's a regeneration, the taking on of a new nature, that of God himself, so that by grace we are divinized. Were this not so, we would not be sharing God's life, but only depending on him. If God became man, but man did not become God, we would not be friends with God, but only beneficiaries. He would not be our brother or friend, for we would not share his life. Nor would he be for us another self, but only a hero, remote and inaccessible. While our ordering to God as he is in himself demands divinization, charity as friendship with God demands it for a more particular reason, for it implies the sharing of God's life. Whatever else is true, divinization cannot be taken to mean that we become a God essentially or substantially, that we are so united to him that we lose our own substantial being and our own identity. We do not become God materially the way a hamburger becomes us, by the matter losing its nature and taking on ours, nor in a nirvana of spiritual absorption into God. Rather, we are divinized by a sort of participation in the life of God. The text so often quoted in this context, everybody who talks about this quotes the same text, uh, speaks this way, partakers of the divine nature. So, so what is participation? So I'm going to say a little bit about what participation, and very, very little bit. This is one of those places where you could go hog wild and talk forever about it. The basic notion of participation can be approached by looking at its etymology. To, to participate is to take a part, take, to take a part. We can participate in something if we take from it without using it all up. That is, if we can take some part of it. The idea is basically that of sharing. Consequently, the thing participated in or shared must be thought of as if it were some kind of a whole. This can happen in a number of ways. We might share a pie, or the road, or the use of a lawnmower. In these cases, we share by quantitatively dividing the thing shared, either dividing its dimensions or its time, and each taking part of the whole. We can also be said to share human nature, or to share in man, because we each of us have humanity, though no one of us exhausts it. There's no limit to the number of possible men. If one man exhausted it, nobody else could be a man. We can also share in a good, which is undivided even when shared, for example, peace or truth. Your knowing a certain proposition in Euclid, for example, in no way impedes my knowing it. Such goods are common goods, goods which are not diminished by being shared. There are other sorts of cause to which, uh, which are also not used up by spreading their causality out. 
The equivocal agent cause, an architect, for example, can have many effects, no one of which is fully expressive of his art, so that the effects participate in their cause, take part of the power, but not the whole, so an architect can make many different buildings. So too, the exemplar cause is a formal cause, since it makes an effect to be what it is. So that seems to me the basic idea of formal cause is a cause that makes a thing be what it is. Um, as a statue of Napoleon is, is a statue of Napoleon, because it's modeled after the man who is the exemplar, namely Napoleon. But no statue is a perfect replica of its original, and each statue only captures a part of, what it looks, of the looks of the original. All four kinds of causes, then, can ground participation. Uh, agent, final, uh, material, and formal. Though in the case of material causality, this occurs by actual material division of the whole, whereas in the others, the cause can maintain its integrity, its wholeness, even while being in some sense divided. It's one of the places where you could ask more. You can ask, well, what kind of division is that? Right? What kind of a whole is that? What kind of division is that? God, of course, is an agent, exemplar, and final cause, which no effect can fully exhaust. This is a quotation from the Summa. Everything is therefore able to be called good and being from the first good, being and good, excuse me, from the first being and good, which is being and good through its essence, insofar as they participate in it through the mode of a certain assimilation, though remotely and deficiently. Thus, therefore, each thing is called good by the divine goodness, as from the first exemplary, effective, and final principle of all goodness. Still, each thing is called good by a likeness of the divine goodness inhering in it, a likeness which is formally its own goodness denominating it, and so there is one goodness of all things and yet many goodnesses. So uh, there I think he's making the point that, that when things uh, share in God, they are themselves good or being, right? but uh, they are taking their being from God in some way, but uh, they do have their own goodness. So it's not, it's not that God is the only good. This text also makes another important point, one which seems to undergird some of Aristotle's criticisms of Plato, namely that the thing which shares in another must really have the quality of the thing it shares in. If a creature is not itself good, it couldn't be said to participate in the goodness of God. So if, if the thing itself, if, if when I say this thing's good, the only thing I mean is there's another good someplace else, right? And this thing doesn't have any good in itself then I would really have done away with the goodness of the thing and it wouldn't be participating anymore. Which is, I think, why Aristotle calls Plato's participation empty. How then do we have God's nature? It cannot be by materially dividing him nor by having his nature fully the way we share in humanity. But since we are effects of his agent, exemplary and final causality, and are effects which do not measure up to their cause, we can share in him through those modes of causation. In this way, every creature not only man or redeemed man shares in God. And uh, there's a little text from, uh, from the sentence's commentary. A creature can be conjoined to God in three ways. In the first way, according to a mere similitude, insofar as there is found in the creature some similitude of the divine goodness, similitude or likeness of the divine goodness, without attaining God according to his substance, and this conjunction is found in all creatures being assimilated to the divine goodness. St. Thomas also describes in the same text an infinitely greater way that a creature can attain God, namely, not by a mere similitude, but by attaining to God in his being. This is the mode by which the created human nature of Christ attains to God. I mean, the human nature of Christ is a creature, right? but it's a joined to God in his being. 
Between these two modes is a third mode of attaining God, a mode which is proper to the saints. Quote, a creature attains to God himself, not merely to his similitude, considered according to his substance. Considered according to God's substance. And this is through operation, namely, when someone adheres by faith to the first truth and by charity to the highest goodness. And thus, this is another mode by which God is specially in his saints by grace. So that's the end of that quotation. While all creatures bear some likeness to God simply insofar as he causes them, and while Christ is united to God in his being, the saints attain to God in his substance, not only by being a similitude, yet without being united to him in his being, nor, as I said earlier, by being uh, um, turned into God, right? simply uh, being kind of annihilated. Um, they do this, as St. Thomas says, by their operations. And this text, next text is from the Summa. God is able to be in things in two ways. This is from, a lot of you have read this, I think it's question eight of the first part. One way in the mode of an agent cause, and in this way he is in all things created by him. In another way, as the object of an operation is in the one operating, according as the known is in the knower, and the desired is in the one desiring. In the second way, then, God is in a special way in rational creatures which know and love him in act or habitually. And because the rational creature has this through grace, he is said in this way to be in the saints, through grace. So there, in that text, he's saying there's two ways to be in, in, uh, for God to be in things. One is the way he's in everything. Another is a special way by grace where he, he uh, gives us operations by which we know him and love him, and so he's in us in, in our acts of knowing and loving him. We can look at the operations of the mind and the will on three separate levels. On the natural level, insofar as we're a certain kind of creature, namely rational, on the level of grace, insofar as we're divinized imperfectly here below, and on the level of glory, when we shall be as much divinized as human nature will allow. Quote, but we know that, we, that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we, sh we shall see him as he is. From the first letter of John. Though it is not our primary interest, we should start with the natural operations in order to understand divinization, uh, divinization through operation, since grace perfects nature and nature is more apparent to us. As animals, we learn through sensation and abstraction from sensibles. Consequently, the proper object of the human mind is the whatness of material things. Just as the proper object of sight is color, and we cannot see anything except by seeing color, so we can only know God as the, pro as the principle of the things which we know properly, namely the material things, and can only know about him the things that are demanded by his being the first principle, that he is the first agent, that he's perfect, that he's the highest good, etc. As our knowledge is limited, so is our love limited. St. Thomas writes, nature loves God above all things as he is the beginning and end of natural good. Nevertheless, we do know God by nature, we do know by nature that God is the greatest good and that he is the common good of the universe. And we've seen that it is natural for the part to love the good of the whole more than his proper good. Thus, by our natural knowledge and love of God, we are more closely assimilated to him than are the other creatures, which are likenesses of God too, but whose operations attain him only indirectly, in particular, only insofar as they uh, are used by us and, uh, and we attain him more directly. Thus, the rational creature, even on the level of nature, shares more fully in the divine nature than do the other creatures. The foregoing participation in the divine nature can be recognized by natural reason, but there is another more hidden participation, a partici even on the level of nature, a participation which, though it is on the level of nature, can only be seen in the light of revelation. 
God tells us in Genesis that we are made in his image and in the New Testament that he's a trinity. This image of God is according to our intellectual nature, insofar as our powers of intellect and will mirror God's Trinitarian processions with their processions of the concept or the word of the heart, St. Thomas calls the concept the word of the heart often, um, and of love, and do so even more when we are actually using those powers to know and love God. So we, in our act of intellect, think thoughts. We bring forth thoughts. And that's a kind of procession in our mind. And when we love within us, there comes forth a kind of inclination to the thing loved. And that's a kind of procession. That's a bringing forth of something. And that's, St. Thomas understands that, that's how, most properly, how we're in the image, on the natural level, how we're in the image of God. Because God has that procession of intellect and will. And that's how the, the Word and the Holy Spirit come forth from the Father. Um, the seniors have done that. The rest of you get to do that when you're seniors. Um, okay. When we know and love God, we have an actual concept or word of the heart and an actual procession of love. Moreover, since acts of knowing and loving are defined by their objects, in knowing and loving God, even if only in a natural way, we have acts more akin, more akin in species to those of God than we do when we know or love other things. For his own unique act of knowing and loving also has his own nature as its object. That's what God thinks about, right? Aristotle defines, I guess, God as thought thinking itself. To summarize the ways we might be able to speak of man's natural participation in divine nature, we can say that we have operations of intellect and will, as does God, that we have, an, have as an object of the intellect and will, though indirectly, what God has as the object of intellect and will, namely himself, and that we have these operations of intellect and will in distinct powers, each of which involves an imminent procession, and by imminent procession I mean a, a bringing forth that doesn't leave you, right? When you have an idea, you don't produce something outside of yourself. Uh, so an imminent procession. While God has these operations in his unique act of existence, but nevertheless with two processions. So even though he's only, only one act of existence, he's got these two processions, one of intellect and one of will. The most perfect partaking possible for us by nature would be for our, two, for our processions of intellect and will to mirror God's not only in the character of the powers they come forth from, but also in the objects they tend toward. Since we have our nature, powers, and operations from God as from an agent, and also as from an exemplar, both regard to his divinity and to his trinity, and because our natural happiness consists in knowing and loving God as our end or good, we can be properly said to participate in God and to do so more than any other creature. All of that's on the level of nature. It remains, though, that the notion of participation in God's nature is more often used in connection with the condition of grace. So, from St. Paul, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. He's saying there, that text saying, we become sons of God, so we must be divinized. It seems that we are sons of God, partakers of the divine nature, in some more formal and complete way, um, by grace than by nature. So now I want to talk a little bit about what grace is. Because the theological virtues order us to an end surpassing our nature, and virtues are so called because they are dispositions which are perfective of the operations of a nature, 
as the virtues or excellences of a horse are the things that make it act well as a horse, we must have in some way divine nature if these theological virtues are virtues. So if those things are theological virtues, the virtue has to be something which allows us to do whatever we're supposed to do well, right? So if they, ha if they make us um, um, do the things of God well, then it must be that we have a divine nature built into the definition of virtue. Grace is, in fact, a kind of share or participation in a superior nature, the nature of God. And this is a quotation, uh, again, from the Summa. The infused virtues dispose man in a higher way and to a higher end than uh, nature, whence it is necessary, too, that they dispose by an order to a higher nature. This is through an order to a participated divine nature, according, as it is said, in 2 Peter 1, great and most precious promises has he given us that through them we might be made partakers in the divine nature. Same text again. And according to the taking on of this nature, we are said to be regenerated as sons of God. So that's a text from St. Peter. For this reason, true too, grace is said to be in the essence of the soul while the virtues are in the powers. Through grace, this is a quotation, through grace we are reborn as sons of God. But regeneration terminates in the essence before the powers, right? So what's, what's reborn, what's born, is, is the substance, right? The thing, and it has powers that flow from what it is. So too, if grace is a rebirth, then, then grace must be a regeneration of the nature of the thing. And the powers, and the powers, the perfected powers flow from that, the virtues, theological virtues, which are in the powers, flow forth from that. Uh, therefore, grace is in the essence before it is in the virtues. Um, in the powers, excuse me. Finally, grace as a participation of the divine nature cannot be caused by anything but God. Quote, the gift of grace exceeds every faculty of created nature since it is nothing other than a certain participation in the divine nature, which it see exceeds every other nature. And therefore, it is impossible that any creature should cause grace. For thus, it is necessary that God alone deify by communicating a fellowship in the divine nature through a certain participation of similitude just as it is impossible that something other than fire should ignite. So God alone can give grace because it's a share in the divine nature. Grace, then, is a partaking, uh, is a partaking of the divine nature in three ways. First, by deifying the essence of our souls, we become more like God in our very souls. Secondly, our powers of intellect and will will be informed by habits which flow from that grace, the theological virtues, which make divine operations connatural to us and which must therefore be themselves some sorts of participations in the divine nature. Further, while God always acts when any creature acts, because the agent is in the patient, so the agent is in the patient, I, by that I'm just thinking that something like when you, when you push something, right, your activity of pushing is in the book that you're pushing, right? Um, so the agent is kind of in the patient. So further, while God always acts when any creature acts, because the agent is in the patient, God's act of causing the operations appropriate to the theological virtues will also cause to be... God to be present in us so as to deify us in some sense. Finally, since an action is defined by its object as seeing uh, by color or house building by houses, so our knowing and loving God uh, of God have their specific natures from their object, which is God. Okay. Through the essences of our soul, though the essences of our souls become deiformed by grace, the likeness of our soul to God does not seem to be something we can very well speak of directly, but only by way of its manifestation in our powers and our operations. Even in more mundane cases of participations in a higher nature, we can see the same point, uh, the, that the principle of the participation is more clear 
in the operations and powers than in the very, the very participation itself, for example. Um, you can train police dogs, right, to, to, do, to partake as sort of in a human uh, community. You can train them to do police work. Um, so uh, they're trained to participate in the political life of man. We intend this when we train the dog and we recognize the success of the training when the dog can do the things we want it to do. So we recognize that it has attained that the habit that we wanted it to have by which it kind of participates in, in the human activity. Um, we recognize that it's there because we see the operations. Can't just see it directly. It is by the operations that we recognize that it has taken on a habit which permits it to do the things above its own nature. We also see this in this example, that the nature of the dog remains intact. It really has a new quality or habit, but it does not, in sharing our own, our higher nature, lose its own nature. So too, man in receiving grace does not lose his human nature. Um, now, there's lots of differences between those cases. I don't mean to, to say that we're just like dogs. Um, so too, when we share in God's nature, we do not lose our own nature, but there is added something to us, namely grace, which permits us to share in divine operations and which is therefore itself a sort of partaking in the divine nature. The operations in question are those of belief and love, of faith and charity. Faith transcends natural knowledge by adhering to the first truth as to a formal object and to the propositions of the faith as to material objects. The work of faith, says St. Thomas, is to believe in God. Elsewhere, he explains that if we consider the formal notion of the object, it is nothing other than the first truth. For the faith about which we are speaking does not assent to anything except because it's revealed by God. Whence it relies upon the divine truth itself as upon a middle term. Just as we believe that triangles have three angles equal to two right angles because of the definition of triangle, which is the middle term in the demonstration of that conclusion. Um, so we believe the propositions of faith because God reveals them. God not only reveals to us such truths, the individual truths of the faith, the propositions of the faith, but also that it's he who reveals them. And it's on this basis that we believe. So our mind is in some way adhering to him as to a formal object, and through that formal object recognizing that we should adhere to these propositions. Moreover, the faithful man is moved to believe not because he has the evidence before him. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, says St. Paul, or the author of the Hebrews. But he is moved to believe because God moves his will to assent to things even though he does not see them. But then the act of faith depends upon God's infusing grace and faith and moving our wills. Consequently, God is also present in the will of the man of faith through the presence of the Holy Spirit, moving us to believe. It is with this in mind that St. Thomas refers to charity as, quote, the form of faith. Effectively, he specifies, not as an intrinsic form or an exemplar, that is, insofar as it orders uh, sorry, effectively, that is, insofar as it orders the act of faith to its end, namely divine blessedness. It is not the case that we are moved by God to believe in just the same way as he moves us with regard to natural activities, though in both cases we depend upon his agency. Uh, in the case of faith, we're being moved with a motion that transcends nature and directs us to God's own truth and to God himself. But it seems to be especially by charity that we share in the life of God. Without charity, our faith and our hope are dead. The spiritual life, says St. Thomas, consists principally in charity. He who has it not is deemed to be spiritually nothing. If we are principally alive spiritually by charity and divinization is, is precisely sharing in the life and operations of God, then charity must in some way be that in virtue of which we are principally divinized. Like faith, charity flows out of a soul born of God, and like faith, charity is a habit by which we are naturally carried toward the Father 
toward God the Father. The further, charity like faith needs to be moved by God in order to be actually brought into activity. But unlike faith, charity will not pass away. Because faith attains God by way of the propositions of the intellect and not simply as he is in himself, it is imperfect and will pass away. And hope, because it is of things unseen, will also pass away when vision is granted to us. But charity, because even here below, it attains to God as he is in himself, loves God without defect. Uh, and now here's a quotation from the Summa. The act of the knowing power is perfected through this, that the known is in the knower. But the act of the appetitive power is perfected through this, that the appetite is inclined towards the thing itself. And therefore it is necessary that the motion of the appetitive power be toward the thing according to the condition of things themselves, but the act of the knowing power is according to the mode of the knower. So he's saying that, um, that when you know something, you kind of take it into your mind, right? But when you uh, love something, your heart goes out to it. So it follows the motive of being of the thing, whereas your knowing follows the motive. Uh, the, the thing becomes altered and becomes um, it, it takes on your mode. So, for example, uh, you can make a circle in your mind of any size whatsoever, no matter how small. Right? You can't do that in physics. Right? You can get down to elementary particles if you're out of luck. So, um, so there's a kind of perfection. You kind of make, make the thing more perfect by receiving it. And on the, on the other side, you know, when you know God, you break him up into propositions. You, know, you, say he, you say God exists, or you can say God is good. So we have different concepts when we put them together. But in him, there's no such composition. Right? So in, no, in order to know him, we have to kind of bring him down to our level a little bit by breaking him up that way. The very order of things is such that God is knowable and lovable because of himself. This is St. Thomas now. As essentially being truth and goodness itself, through which other things are both known and loved. But with regard to us, because our knowledge takes its origin from sense, the things closer to sense are more knowable beforehand, and the ultimate term of knowledge is in that which is most remote from sense. According to this, therefore, it is to be said that love, which is the act of an appetitive power, even in the state of this life, this is still St. Thomas speaking, tends to God first, and from him it is derived to others. And according to this, charity loves God immediately, but other things by the mediation of God. In knowledge, though, the converse is true, because we know God through others, as a cause through an effect, or through the mode of eminence or negation, as is clear from Dionysius in the Divine Names. That's the end of the quotation. When we love something, our will tends to the thing as it is in himself. But when we know, the operation is completed by the thing in some way coming to be in our minds. This, th thus, will conforms to things in their real being, but intellect conforms, to things in its, uh, conforms things to itself. We attain God's beatitude even here below then, and we do so by way of the habit of charity by which we love God as he loves himself. He is the object of our love immediately, despite the weakness of intellectual adherence to him. For we can love a thing much, even if we love, know it little. However much it remains true that love follows knowledge. So um, God can supply there, right? He can, he can supply for our lack. Um, by nature, even if we can love him above all things, we cannot love him except as the beginning and end of all things. But by grace and charity, we are lifted up into the divine life so as to have his blessedness as our own object. And this love, though it will in some way be altered when fulfilled, it will not be destroyed. Charity not only attains God as he is in himself, but it also conforms us to God. Um, 
in a text cited earlier, uh, St. Thomas said, a text I cited earlier, he says, the will is transformed into that end, its end, which happens through charity, for the appetite of each thing is naturally moved and tends to the end connatural to itself, and this motion comes forth from a certain conformity uh, of the thing to its end. <clears throat> Elsewhere, St. Thomas explains why the will becomes conformed to whatever it loves. This is a text from the uh, Sentences Commentary, and um, I, have, uh, I, I wonder about some things in it, but I'm going to go out on this limb and you can start sawing in the question period. Um, because the will is move, a moved mover, a mover, uh, which, me, a moved mover, a mover because it moves the other powers of man and moved because it's moved by the good, it must take on from its mover, the good or the object of appetite, a form by which it becomes such a mover somewhat as a hammer must take on momentum from the hand in order to drive the nail. I should point out that this is me speaking. I'm not quoting St. Thomas here. Um, but a thing only gives what it has, so the will must take on from the object of the will some likeness to that object, which likeness is then a principle of the operation of the will. Consequently, the will in its operation becomes like the object of the will. Thus, if we love what is beneath us, we become worse, while if we love what is above us, we are elevated. And this next part is a quotation from the sentences commentary. The lover whose affection is informed by the good itself is inclined through love to work according to the demands of the beloved. And such operation is most delightful to him as befitting his form. Whence, whatever the lover does and suffers for the, for the beloved, it is all delightful to him. And he is always more and more set on fire by the beloved, insofar as he experiences a greater delight in the beloved, in those things which he does or suffers for the beloved. And just as fire is not able to be restrained by the motion which belongs to it according to the demands of its form, except through violence, so neither can the lover be restrained from acting according to love. In the act of loving God, then, especially in the act of supernatural love called charity, we are made like God, for he is himself our object in that love. And as we have seen, this conformity gives us a connaturality with God such that we desire what he desires, and we recognize his truths by our love of them. So much is this thought so that when St. Thomas speaks of charity, he associates with it the gift of wisdom, for this wisdom is had by a kind of conformity with God. <clears throat> by charity, too, we are made to dwell with the Lord and he with us, for it is a property of love that the beloved and the lover live together. He that abides in charity abides in God and God in him. First letter of John. When we love, the beloved must be in us by knowledge, and we ourselves strive to know the beloved as much as possible in proportion to our love. With regard to the will, the beloved is in us because of our inclination to the beloved. That is in itself a sort of presence of the beloved in the lover. And the lover is in the beloved because he thinks of what is good for the beloved as good for himself. The union of friends in love makes them one soul. Charity then, like faith, is a habit and a power of the soul, a habit flowing forth from grace and the essence of the soul as natural powers flow from the natural essence of the soul. The Holy Spirit moves us to love, and we, having the habit of charity, share in that motion of love. Thus, charity is another mode of divinization, and through it we are enabled to love God as he is in himself, and to do so from our own power, in a natural way. We conclude that grace divinizes us in the essence of our soul, and also in our powers of intellect and will, by causing in them forms which are like to God by pouring into our powers of intellect and will new habits, habits which have a new connatural object, namely God himself, <clears throat> and by allowing us to be moved by God as by an agent 
through those theological virtues to a final cause beyond our nature, union with God, grace makes us participators, partakers in the divine nature. Grace elevates our likeness to God not only with regard to the divinity of God, but also with regard to the Trinity. We are in the image of God by nature insofar as we have an intellectual nature, the operations of which are carried out through processions of the word and of the, heart, of the word of the heart and of love, and are in that image as much as nature can make us when we think on and love God. But we are even more so in the image of God when we know him by faith and love him by charity. Under these conditions, we attain him as he attains himself. That is, we know about him what could only be known by him, and we know him as he is in himself. In the question, excuse me, love him as he is in himself. In the question on the missions of the persons, St. Thomas speaks of this conformity to the Trinity as follows. The soul through grace is conformed to God. Whence for this that some divine person be sent to someone through grace, it is necessary that there comes to be an assimilation of him to a divine person who is sent to someone through some gift of grace. And because the Holy Spirit is love, through the gift of charity, the soul is assimilated to the Holy Spirit. Whence the mission of the Holy Spirit is attended according to the gift of charity. <clears throat> Elsewhere he will say that the, I think I'm right about this, that the um, assimilation to the word is through the uh, gift of wisdom. And charity does not only conform us to God because we are moved by God and to God, but also because the very principle of our act of love, the habit of charity, is a likeness of the Holy Spirit. But there is more. We do not, by sanctifying grace, have the fullness of the gifts God bestows on his, beloved, on his loved ones. There is a yet greater inheritance awaiting those who are faithful, the very vision of God, seen by the light of glory. While the charity we have been speaking of remains in the kingdom of God, the gifts of faith and hope, because they're imperfect, belonging to those who do not see and who do not possess, pass away and are replaced by the possession of God and the beatific vision. In order to have this divine operation of the intellect, we must have the divine object, which is the essence of God himself. But his essence cannot be known by way of any likeness, for no likeness would sufficiently express God's essence. We must have God as our immediate object, just as he is the immediate object of our wills in charity. As St. Thomas argues, this is not connatural to any intellect but God's, and so we need an additional light to attain this object, which light St. Thomas calls the light of glory. <clears throat> this is another text from the Summa. Everything which is elevated to something exceeding its nature must be disposed by some disposition which is above its nature. When some created intellect sees God through his essence, the very essence of God becomes the intelligible form of the intellect. So, the, so usually we have the concept as an intelligible form that we use, right? A concept that we think of, like the concept of triangle or whatever. Um, he's saying here that we don't have an idea of God in heaven. We have God himself as the idea. It takes the place of the idea. So that's kind of like a spiritual union. Right? Um, and a, uh, yeah. Whence it is necessary that some supernatural disposition be superadded to it, for this that would be elevated to such a sublimity. Such, since therefore the natural power of the created intellect does not suffice for seeing the essence of God, as was shown, it is necessary that by divine grace there be grafted onto it a power of understanding, and this is the light about which it is said in the Apocalypse, that the glory of God illumined it, namely the society of the blessed seeing God. And according to this light we are made deiform, that is, like to God, according to the text of 1 John, when he shall appear, 
we shall be like to him, and we shall see him as he is. That quotation is all from the uh, Summa. This light of glory is in at least one place described as a perfection of the light of grace. So we should not think that there's a complete rupture between the light of grace here below and the life of glory. Rather, there's a sort of continuity. St. Thomas says this. To the second, it must be said that a form does not exceed the proportion of its matter, but they're of the same genus. Similarly, too, grace and glory are referred to the same genus because grace is nothing other than a certain beginning of glory in us. He seems to be there saying that grace is to glory kind of like matter to form. That's an interesting claim. Um, but in any case, it's, the, it's, a, it's in the same genus and there's a kind of perfection um, of the one in the other. And so there's no rupture in death. It's just an unveiling of the truth. Thus, glory is the culmination of our conformity to Christ. As St. John of the Cross says, this vision is the cause of the soul's complete likeness to God. St. John the Evangelist says, we know that we shall be like him, not because the soul will have as much capacity as God, that is impossible, but because all that it is will become like God. Thus it will be called and shall be God through participation. Elsewhere, St. John of the Cross says, this transformation into divine, into divine life will be effected perfectly in heaven, in all those who merit the vision of God. Transformed in God, these blessed souls will live the life of God and not their own life, although indeed it will be their own life, because God's life will be theirs. Then they will truly proclaim, we live, not now we, but God lives in us. We have traced too superficially and hastily the meaning of the divinization and how it is related to charity, defined as friendship with God. Our Lord tells his apostles, I no longer call you servants, but friends. For everything I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. To be a friend is to share a life, to form a community around a shared common good. But man cannot do this with God, even if the God should become a man. Man himself must become a God. But to become a God while remaining man is to partake in the divine nature. This partaking is by way of grace, faith, and charity in this life, and by way of glory, the beatific vision, and charity in the next life. In, this, in each case, that of natural knowledge and love, that of grace and that of glory, we are the image of the Trinity. In grace and glory, we have, as the object of the intellect and will, God himself immediately. And so we share in operations which are proper to God himself, and as they are then connatural to us, we are partakers of the divine nature. Thank you.